We're going to get started here this morning. Good morning. Thanks again for coming. This is Revelation chapter 7 today. Revelation 6 and 7 go hand in hand as a unit. We're talking about the same period of time or the same sequence of things that are occurring. Here's how I'd like to go through this this morning. I'm going to leave it to you to read through Revelation 7. Take a couple of minutes. Pull it up on a phone. If you didn't bring your phone in here, there's Bibles under a chair. And what I'd like you to do is come up with two questions as you read it. And to frame what these questions can be, simply the sky's the limit. A question might be something as basic as what the heck is going on here? A question can be as specific as why are these tribes of Israel outlined in a way that you never see in the rest of the Bible? I don't know what your questions are, um, but come up with two. And then what I want you to do is share it with someone next to you, someone that you did not come with today, all right? So don't cop out and just do this with your spouse. Meet someone and say hi. Take about five minutes to do that, and then what we're going to do is gather back together, see how chapter 7 flows out of everything we've seen with the seals, and get into the gist of, I think, what is happening here in context. So take five and go. I'd love to hear some of the questions that came up. Let's uh, just shout them out at random. What are some of the things you're asking as you're reading Revelation 7? What's happening? It's, it's the best question you can ever ask. What's happening? Huge question. What else? 144,000. 144,000? Yeah, who are we talking about here? Who's the 144,000? Is it specifically Israel? What am I supposed to understand by this? Right. What else? Is it literal? Is it literal? Great question. What else? Are the 144,000 different than the people who are clothed in white, or are we seeing different scenes, different groups, if you will, or something like that? Great question. Yeah, what else? What's the importance of the winds stopping the wind? Yeah, what's up with the winds? Why we got to stop the four winds? Right? Good question. Anything else? Okay, let's get started there. Fantastic stuff. Here's what we're going to do today. Revelation is a narrative. Revelation is a movie. Revelation is a story being told. And one of the difficulties I think we fall into when we read the Bible because of simply time and focus is that we take little snippets. And it's the equivalent of like watching your favorite movie clips on YouTube. It's fun to do if you know the movie, but if you try to construct the movie by simply watching isolated clips... It's disjointed and doesn't really work. So let's go back and cast the narrative that's going on. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we see that John is brought up to the throne room of heaven and he sees the glory of God and he sees the Lamb on the throne. And it's the Lamb alone who is worthy, able, and has the authority to open and dictate the destiny of life. It's symbolized by a scroll. And what we see happen in chapter 6 is that he starts to undo the seals on this scroll. And of course, it's a metaphor that no one else can open up the future. No one else can cast the future. No one else can see the future. No one else can certainly dictate what the future is going to be except for the Lamb. Human destiny is in his hands. He alone is worthy to open the seals. Hopefully you catch the metaphor on that. 
Chapter 6 is seeing seal after seal be opened. So as the scroll continues to open, you continue to see more and more of God's both judgment and vindication being poured out on the earth as people inflict horror on people. Now, Ashley asked a great question last week, and her question was, how do you know if you're on, forgive me if I'm not getting this right, correct me, but how do I know if I'm getting, um, how do you know if you're getting the vindication side of God or the judgment side of God? When, when bad stuff happens, should I read that as judgment or not? Am I capturing it? And in the face of that, how do I know if it's the influence of the devil or the influence of God? Because it seems like God is doing some, or behind at least, some pretty next level terrible stuff in Revelation chapter 6. And we see that, and that's the big question that comes screaming out. And Revelation 6 ends with the world ending. We see the, the moon turning to darkness, the, or, uh, the moon turning to blood, the sun turning to darkness, the sky receding like a scroll, earthquake and all that cataclysmic language, the people crying out, hide us from God because the day has come. And remember, whenever you see the day in the Bible, it's talking about what we would call judgment day or what the Old Testament would call the day of the Lord. This is the context that sets up chapter 7. Here's how it starts. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And as Alan asked, they're kind of holding back the wind until these 144,000 are sealed. So in chapter 6, we have something sealed being open. Now we have an angel holding that like very seal that you, you know, you know, that stamp that you make the seal with coming and sealing people before it seems that this cataclysm happens. Don't harm the plants or the trees. Don't, don't destroy the earth, if I can just make an interpretive leap there, until this group is sealed. And the million-dollar question, of course, is who is this group? When it says after this, do you see that in verse 1? After this I saw. Here's how I would encourage you to read that. Look at it as a perspective shift, not as a sequential timeline. So don't read chapter 6. Chapter 6 comes to an end. And after chapter 6, then this happened. I don't think that's what's meant by it. I think what you're meant to see as you're reading the story is that John is transported up to heaven and he's getting these incredible visions. And have you ever been in somewhere where there is complete sensory overload? Okay, what arguably would be greater sensory overload than the throne room of heaven? So imagine when you're somewhere and there is a lot going on. And in that time, everything is happening simultaneously, right? Everything is occurring, but you're only able to give focus to something like one thing at a time. And so I think what's happening in Revelation chapter 7 is in chapter 6, he's telling us about what he saw transpiring here. But now he wants to show you something else that's transpiring at the exact same time. So chapter 6 and chapter 7 are both equally occurring. It's just the focus of the story. Do you follow? 
That, I think, gets really important, especially for the way that I'm encouraging you to read Revelation, not as a blueprint of end-time happenings, but as a collection of perspectives on what's going on in the here and now, be it 96 A.D. or 2022 A.D. Yeah, Ben. Uh, Sure, maybe, but... By saying it's both, you're saying it's not happening now because if you're saying it's after this time-wise or sequentially, one has to happen before the other. So that, that would be the difficult. It's like, it, is chapter 7 happening now or not? Is John seeing something that's occurring in real time or is he getting some prophetic oracle of something that's to happen? And I'm saying he's seeing something in real time. And what we see is this number of 144,000 being sealed. And all of this, Ashley, is going to pertain right into the question you're asking. So let me go through the 144,000 door, and I think it'll circle around to that million-dollar question behind it. All right? So who are they? Yeah, Zach. Question about seal and seals. Is this the same word we're talking about? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So a seal is either the wax you know, boom, or it's the, do you guys know how seals work in in the ancient world? I don't want to take this for granted. Have you ever seen these? Um, They're really kind of cool, but, you know, they didn't have self-lick or self-stick envelopes. So I write something, and I want to give it to Aaron, but I don't want Alan reading it. So how do I make sure that Alan isn't reading Aaron's mail? Well, they would do the same thing that we do. You'd have to kind of seal it so you know if someone ripped it open. But what they would do is they would take a chunk of wax, and they would melt that wax over a candle, and then they would drip it so it would, well, seal it. And then what they would do on top of it is they would take some kind of device, usually a ring, or sometimes like a stamp, if you will. And what's significant to it is embedded in the ring, you gotta think like a big old like Super Bowl ring or college ring or something like that. And what would be embedded into it would be your moniker or your, your, your family crest or, or, or some kind of symbol and it carried the weight of a signature. So you would push that into the seal and it would kind of function as like, this is who has sent this this is who is sealing this document. And if Alan opens something that I've sealed, no big rip. But like, what if the president or a governor or like, like an, an official government document, what if Caesar was to seal it? You could see that there could be some um, repercussions, shall we say, of tampering with his mail. So you got to kind of figure out from context, is the seal referring to the stamp? Or is the seal referring to the wax thing there? And in seven, you see it used both ways because in six, it's definitely wax seals being opened. But now that angel's coming with the sealer stamp, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And what we see is that these people are going to get stamped. They're going to get sealed. So this angel's going to come, and how does it put it? He has the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So the servants of God are being stamped with this like 
Well, here, here's kind of the question. I, I, I don't want to get overly literal in this, but, but how are we supposed to envision this? Are we supposed to assume that, well, well, before they seal them, God's going to pour wax on their forehead and they're going to have wax on their face and press it in? I, I think we're going too far with it there. I think it's better to think about it as being branded or tattooed. And you're going to see this play out later in Revelation. And it basically revolves a question around a question of which brand are you carrying? Because there's going to be all kinds of people that are branded later on their foreheads or on their hands with a different mark. And it's called the mark of the beast. And it gives the 666 number and all that. Well, don't get lost in the weeds. Are you branded by the beast or are you branded by God? Just think in like high elevation terms. And, and I think it makes more sense. We see that the servants of God are getting marked as God's own. They're getting selected, protected. They're getting sealed. They're, 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 they're getting set apart. They're getting some kind of stamp of authority on them that this one belongs to God. Dare I say as much as a rancher would brand a cow going, leave my cow alone. That one's mine. And if you mess with my cow, you got to answer to me. That I think is the general sense of this. Yeah. Uh, kind of, sort of, actually. Um, the reality I find with a lot of Christian traditions and rituals is they end up smashing together about like nine different ideas and it keeps layering and layering and layering. At its base, Ash Wednesday comes out of just the idea of that when you'd mourn before God in the Old Testament or, or express repentance and humility, you would do it in ash. It would be, you know, you had ash everywhere in the ancient world. You're cooking over, everything over fires. And so it was a way of going, I'm lowly, I'm dirty, I'm nothing, I'm poor, I'm hoveled, I'm, um, you know, nothing but a street urchin before you, if I can put it that way, or a chambermaid or, or whatever. Does that make sense? But then, yes, getting marked, like, so why do we do it like a cross? It starts layering on that way. You got it. You got it. So we see that a seal is put, in verse 3, on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, and that who is sealed. And here's, uh, we can get into this as much as you want, but I never want to get so lost in details that we miss the gist of the story John is trying to tell. I'm simply going to submit to you that the 144,000 should be taken figuratively and symbolically, not literally. That's the way most people take it. Very few take it the other way. We can talk about the whys of it, but I'm going to give you just a couple of very easy ways to understand this um, and why I think it's better taken symbolically. Number one, in verse five or four, he says, I heard the number of those who were sealed. So John hears the number, right? We see the guy coming with the stamp, the angel coming with the stamp, and then he hears the number. So someone's talking about it. And the number is 144,000. But then you jump to verse nine after it is 
enumerated, and he doesn't hear, but he looks. And what does he see? More than anyone can count. Well, we just counted it. So apparently, we can count it. Is he looking at different groups? Arguably, I don't think it's the natural sense of the story being told. He sees the angel come with the seal. The servants of God are going to be marked. He hears a number mentioned. There's a lot of energy given to a lot of detail with it, which should make us ask the question, why? Because it gives details for a reason. But then when he looks, he sees this group that's numbered, but it's not just people of Israel, it's people of every tribe and every language. I want to submit to you those are the same groups. And so what are we supposed to understand figuratively or symbolically from the number he hears over against what he sees? Does that make sense? Number two, simply Revelation is just a symbolated book. And so at any kind of move, we should be expecting symbols to be used. And I think that just kind of chalks itself up as well. Um, yeah, question. Right, right. So does that mean... Yeah, yeah, the 144,000 are seen on earth. The multitude no one can count are those in heaven, so to speak. So should that be a prevailing argument to take them as separate groups? And that is the argument people will use who want to see the 144,000 as a separate group versus this. So, it, yeah, Ben. His vision, one of the questions I have is, is that past, present, and future, or is that that moment? Does this time exist, or is that, you know, the total accumulation of everybody in heaven? Like, what? Well, like what's going on? Because we have all these things smashing together. Here's where you always have to come back to, in my opinion. You have to come back to going, why is John writing this to seven churches in 96 AD? Because if you're not asking that question, then you're not looking for the answers that are tucked in the book. So, as I process it through, I ask questions like this. If this is a blueprint of end times events, why would someone in 96 AD who is facing either the seduction of the Roman Empire or the persecution of the Roman Empire give two rips if in 2342, 144,000 people from Israel are set aside in a seven-year period of time? What's it got to do with me? I mean, it's interesting, but how, how, how does this become a message to seven churches anymore? And if Revelation is using symbolism from beginning to end, why would we step out for literalism in something like this when other numbers are always used highly symbolically like seven and, and so forth? Again, I'm not saying that this is a conclusive argument either way. I'm just making a case for how to go about trying to determine what you think the better reading is. Yeah, Mike. My limited experience, it kind of hit the nail on the head. 
so much of what we see in pop culture and popular theology and everything is they divorce their analysis from the fact that he's writing the seven churches 2,000 years ago. And maybe there's things in there mm-hmm. that they get, they pick up on that it's a lot more grounded than. Yeah, and to put it another way, thanks. Yeah, you know, we want the Bible to be relevant to us. And so with Revelation, what often happens in that very well-meaning approach is we want to see this as something that's happening in our select timeline. And, and, and a lot of amazing people who love the Lord that study this kind of stuff have, in my opinion, inadvertently and mistakenly, tried to attach Revelation symbolism to the geopolitical scene that exists in the Cold War or the geopolitical scene that exists in the post-Cold War, and they did the same in World War II, and they did the same in World War I, and they did the same in the Napoleonic era, they did the same in the Reformation. And it's fascinating to read church history and commentaries how people who have always taken that line would so see the book of Revelation as being fulfilled, and it's 1541. See, the Revelation is being fulfilled. It's 1812. Look, Revelation is being fulfilled. Gorbachev has the mark of the beast. See, Revelation is being fulfilled. And I mean, and I'm old enough now that I, and I used to be of that camp, that I remember that, and it's always a moving target. And it's not that they're entirely wrong, it's just that they're not completely right. They're not entirely wrong because the imagery does at some level apply in every age in terms of are people acting like the horsemen are doing it? Well, that's going to be true in the Napoleonic era, World War II, and the post-Cold War. But to say that it's a direct prophecy to that gets difficult. So I'm at 9.30. I got 10 minutes, but I, I do want to take these. I got to kind of keep this on track, but go. Yeah, I was just going to say that it helps me in this chapter to, to think back to the, the, the bigger theme that we've already talked about, that John's writing about victory and overcoming. And I get the sense that in verses 1 through 8, this is about life on earth, and there's a layer of spiritual protection around you. And one day in heaven, verses 9 through 17, um, this, this is on its way. Um, when, the great, when, the, when life on earth, or the great, the great tribulation, um, when, when you are no longer on earth, you're, you're done in heaven, you get, like, this is what you see. So mm-hmm. to all those who are going through trials and tribulation there, And if I can, and Ken, I don't want to cut you off, but okay, let me then make a case springboarding off of this idea that we have this message of overcoming and victory through revelation and watching God's people go through trial and tribulation. How does this 144,000 factor in, and what are we to understand and derive hope out of it by? Because that's the fundamental question at the end of the day, not just a piece of trivia. I am going to submit to you that what this does, and it takes up a lot of space, believe it or not, you know, he's, he's devoting a lot of detail to this. Um, first, let me point an anomaly out, and it's something I mentioned earlier. The listing that you have here does not occur anywhere else in the Bible. The list of the tribes, if you have them here, is not repeated anywhere in the Old Testament, despite the list of tribes being elucidated in various manners and various ways over and over again. So that should cause you a moment of pause. Now, it's always possible to go, well, John kind of got it wrong, you know, who bats a thousand, but 
Um, I always like to default to going, I think he knew the Bible better than I did. And maybe there's something there. And if you care, uh, the tribe of Dan is what's missing in the list. Number two, the way that it's laid out is if you compare it against things like, like, like numbers, especially, you know, the book of numbers, we all love the book of numbers. We go there and read it in our devotional time heavily. The first 10 chapters of the book of numbers surrounds itself with, let's just see if you can guess, numbers. Numbering who? Numbering the Israelites, the priests, the clans, the tribes. We're numbering all these kinds of people. Now, and you just hit it. It is a census. What you see here in Revelation chapter 7 really follows the flow, both biblically and extra-biblically, in terms of a census. So we see a census is being taken. Okay, cool, we got a census. But now we gotta back up and ask the question of this. Why do you take a census? Or better put, why does someone who is a, a government leader, a king or a ruler, take a census? What's that? Military reasons. Well, there is taxes and draft plays in, but fundamentally, what is the strength of my country? What is the production strength of my country? What is the resource strength of my country? More specifically, what is the military strength of my country? And that would pertain to a draft. You know, as Jesus once says, when a king goes off to war, he first counts the cost to see whether he can win this battle or not. The key way you got to count is go, how many men do we have? How many men do they have? Are we going to count it up? Let's count it up. I'm going to submit to you that what you have here and that what someone from that numbers mindset and Roman mindset would understand is a census is being taken. And people who understand this would go, a census is taken for military reasons. Let me push it further. Why the number 144,000 and why is the number broken down? Well, at some level, we know that 12 is a good old biblical number, right? And so we can always kind of run home to mama on this one and go, well, it's 12 represents the tribes of Israel. That's why Jesus has 12 apostles because he's showing that he's the new Israel and the new Israel has come. And so we know that we can always run home to this biblical 12 as being a number that symbolizes the people of God. Well, well, I think that we have that there. And the number of thousand is used like in Revelation 20 for the millennium. And it's often used as a way to kind of refer the totality of God. It's like, you know, the way that we might say a million to refer to like, yeah, it's just like all of it. A thousand is that good round number. So it's the full number of the people of God from every tribe, right? I want to submit to you an overlooked detail that I think is key. And where I want to go is into Roman military history with you. I'm sure that everyone, if not most of you here, have heard of the Roman legions, correct? The Roman legions were the the, the army or the armed forces, the army, navy, air force, and marines. They called them legions or 
legionnaires. And these legions were the ones that maintained the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace throughout the empire. And they did it by shedding blood against anyone that dared stand up against the Roman Empire on the borders. How many in the paper strength of a Roman legion, and I say paper strength because just like in the military today, though a platoon or a brigade or a battalion should be so many people, it never is in reality. They have the target number. What is the Roman paper strength of a legion? Which, and it brings it to six. Yeah, you will see four to 5,000 early in the Roman Empire. By, mid, by, by Augustus and on, you're at about 6,000 is paper strength of the Roman legions, okay? Now, take that number and let's assume for a moment that what's happening with the 144,000 is that God is taking a census. God is looking at the military strength of his people. How does each number now relate to the Roman Empire that is the oppressor to whom these people are written? How do the numbers compare? Doubles it. Yeah, if it's 6,000, each tribe is 12,000, right? It doubles it. So if each legion is 6,000, each tribe, which you can read about in numbers, which is a legion or fighting force. That's how they went and did the conquest on the land, right? A lot of numbers is about Moses going, what's the military strength as we go in and take the promised land? We double you. That's the message of Revelation chapter 7 to people being oppressed or threatened or living in fear of Rome. God's number doubles you. Rome, you have a fighting force. God is also raising up a fighting force. God has an army too. And this army doubles you in strength. Can I ask you, if you're afraid of the military force and you're living in fear because of your faith, does that bring you hope? Does it bring you hope to know that your reinforcements and that your number actually double that of those who are trying to take you down? You see what's going on here? If you were a Jew, maybe. If you were a Gentile, maybe not. Well, to, I mean, flush it out. Flush it out. Yeah, go with it. That, that, you know, after this, I mean, when you take the, we've got a scene here, we've got a scene here, we've got a scene here. This scene is not related necessarily to that scene. Or it may be at the same time. I don't know. But there's certainly an after this, and then there's something specific about the Jewish nation or heritage. And then in, in the beginning of 9, after this again, I looked, and I saw all this in heaven. So there's a, a flash here. Yeah. We've got a flash here. We're getting perspective, Jews. perspective, perspective. And then we've got the Jews only. No, no. 12,000 is Jews. There's a lot more than Jews. It's Israel. What do you mean 12,000? Okay, but, but that's Jews. No, it's not. And that, I think, is the key to it. Everyone wants to make Jew equal Israel. I, I will submit to you that... It, it's then the church is the new Israel, or, or, I mean, whatever. What, what I'm saying, and, and what I want you to catch, is we all make a Jew-Gentile distinction. 
because in much of the Old Testament, there was an ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. Then we come to the New Testament age, and we tend to think that Gentile has replaced Jew. That is an equal and opposite error to thinking that Jews were the chosen people of God ethnically and not Gentiles. And I'll give you a simple thing. If Jews are, as we're calling them Jews, which no one called them Jews until about 500 AD, uh, BC anyway, so Moses would go, I'm not a Jew. He would say, I'm a Levite. Um, they identify themselves as Israel, not as an ethnic distinction. When you think of who came out to become the people of Israel, who came out of Egypt? Because that's the people of Israel, right? What's that? Slaves. Slaves, but ethnically, who came out? Jews. Yeah, descendants of Jacob. Who else? Everyone else who wanted to go with them. Look it up. Exodus chapter 12. Many Egyptians went with them. And they passed through the Red Sea and they were baptized into the people of Israel and they were circumcised. They had no blood relation whatsoever. Israel has never been restricted to an ethnic bloodline. Israel is the term throughout the Bible for the people of God. And it's given through Abraham's bloodline to be sure. I'm not trying to wash all that away, but it has never been restricted to that any more than um, bloodline is restricted, those of you who are adopted from being part of a new family. And so Paul will talk a lot in Romans chapter 11. We don't replace Israel, we're grafted into Israel. And he uses the, the analogy of a tree. And he says, and I've never done this, but you could look this up online, and, and I so hope it's not photoshopped and that it's real. But like where people will take like one kind of fruit tree branch, and they'll go up to a different kind of fruit tree, and they'll fuse that or graft that branch into that tree, and that tree will nourish that branch, even though that branch kind of maintains somewhat of its own like, characteristic, if you will. Jesus, I think, does this. Paul certainly does this, where he says, you're Israel. And Israel does not replace ethnic Israel, but you're not Israel if you're ethnic Israel and don't have faith in God. Uh, Romans chapter 2, a Jew is not someone who's been circumcised outwardly. A Jew is someone who's been circumcised in their heart. So no one gets to claim Abrahamic lineage as an in for being a people of God. This is why in John chapter 8, he can go to Jews who say, we're Abraham's descendants, we're slaves of no one. He goes, no, you're not. You're children of the devil. You're not children of Abraham at all. It's why John the Baptist can say, I tell you the truth. Um, God can raise up children of Abraham out of the rocks of the ground. Unless you repent, you'll perish. You are Israel, and I don't care if you're German, Irish, or Chinese. If you are in Christ, you are Israel. And this number is elucidating the people of God, Israel, you, the multitude, the masses, as an army for the Lord in oppression, knowing that you double the strength of your oppressor, Hang in there, because in chapter 6, we see that the believer's rear ends are getting handed to him. We have horror on earth being poured out. We have the souls under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? 
and it's those who lost their head for Jesus. They lost in the battle, physically. And yet they're described in the same way in chapter 6 as they are in 7. Palm branches and white robes, and we'll see them described that way later as well. I'm going to submit to you we're seeing the same group of people come through the story again and again. Hang in there in chapter 6. Judgment is coming upon them. Take heart, chapter 7, because God has sealed you and raised you up, and that doesn't save you from dying. It doesn't save you from martyrdom. But know that you are sealed and that this judgment is not upon you. You might be living in the horror of war. You might be attacked. You might even be on, shall we say, the indirect receiving end of all the horrors of the earth pouring out, which are judgments of God against the evil in this world. But it's not against you. You are sealed as my own. Do not think that because you've died that I'm judging you. Do not think that because you've lost your head you are being condemned by God. Do not think that because you are suffering that God is punishing you. You are sealed as my soldiers. Soldiers get purple hearts. Soldiers die in war. And we'll pick up with that next week because we totally ran out of time. I thought I was going to do this in like 10 minutes today. Um, (laughs) But churn on that. And I got to land the plane. Keep asking the questions. They're great. Challenge it. Think about it. Wrestle through it. And we'll bring it back to the fore in a week. God bless.